Well, good morning. Welcome to another week of us being scattered together. Uh, like all of you, I'm sure we are watching the news very closely and um, waiting for whatever updates we'll have to gathering restriction updates um, on the 5th from Dr. Henry. But uh, for this time today, as we gather this way, thanks for being with us. I pray this is a blessing and an encouragement to you today. Um, we're going to do what we always do here, come to a passage in God's Word, talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. If you remember last week, we looked at how Jesus has begun his public ministry and he's going around healing, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then all these crowds we see at the end of chapter 4, crowds from all these different places are gathering around him everywhere he goes. And then Matthew tells us this now, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's God's word. Uh, let me pray for us uh, quickly, and then we'll dive into uh, our passage for today. Spirit of God, would you illumine the preaching of your word? Would you open up uh, eyes and hearts and ears to see and to hear what it is you want to show to us today? Uh, pierce through any barriers that are in the way and uh, break through to us, God, just as you've broken through to me this week. Break through to each one who hears this word. Accomplish the purpose for which you send this out. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth. Amen. So, all right, as many of you will probably know, at this point in time, we've been going through this new teaching series through the Gospel of Matthew called Kingdom Come since December of last year. But as we move now from what Matthew records for us in the, about the life and ministry of Jesus in chapters 1 through 4, uh, now we move into this next section that Matthew records for us in chapters 5 through 7. We actually move into a brand, whole brand new section of Jesus' life and ministry, which is actually probably the one of, if not the best known section of recorded teaching of Jesus ever, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. If you, if you look in your Bible there, the chapter heading might even say the Sermon on the Mount. Now, yeah, to begin with... Um, you might be disappointed to know um, that that title um, is given to the message simply because of the location of where Jesus gives the message happens to be on a mountainside, as you see in verse 1 there, which means, you know, the title is about as creative as the band that Dave Matthews formed, calling themselves Dave Matthews Band. But first of all, I mean, just for the record, Jesus didn't give the message this title. That's, that's somebody else... Uh, gave the collection of this teaching uh, that title. But listen, while the, the name for Jesus' sermon may not, may not be all that creative, the content of what Matthew records for us in these next three chapters here, whether this was a single message or, or a collection of teachings that Jesus gave from this lo location, is not only creative, man, it is, it is piercing, it is, it is profound, and it is profoundly countercultural. For, for having now begun his public ministry, Jesus, as we see, he's going around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, calling disciples to himself. Jesus now describes in this next section what his, what, what, for his kingdom citizens, he describes what life in his kingdom is going to look like. 
He's, that's what he's giving us in this section. This is what life in my kingdom will look like, which sounds like it should be a really great thing, right? It sounds great. I mean, Jesus, okay, here we go. Jesus is going to give us really clear definition about what life in his perfect heavenly kingdom that he's bringing looks like. And, and man, if we could just strive to live according to what Jesus says, we reason, then man, life in this world would just be so much profoundly better. This world would be a profoundly better place, which, yeah, like, that's right. It, it, it would, and, and, and actually, that's, that's what many in my parents' and grandparents' generation, who were kind of, maybe we would say, those who were more culturally, culturally religious, believed. They, they, they would say, yes, you know what, um, we don't need to get bogged down in, in doctrine, a bunch of like fancy theology. If we would just live according to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, we'd all be fine. And yet... What a statement like that reveals is it's like it seems as though they didn't read what Jesus actually says in the Sermon on the Mount, or, or, or at least didn't read it seriously, because if you've ever read this message before, man, Jesus is saying crazy stuff here. He's, he's saying things like, you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lust is guilty of adultery. Or, or you've heard it was said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, if you are angry with them, you, you are liable to the same judgment. I mean, what? Like seriously, that, that's a standard that you think we could just live according to? That, that anybody is going to be able to just live according to that? That you look at that and be like, oh yeah, that's doable. No, Right? In fact, it wasn't that many years ago when uh, a woman named Virginia Stem Owens, who was an uh, English literature professor, she gave Jesus' sermon to her university students, many of whom had never even heard of the Sermon on the Mount. She gave them the Sermon on the Mount, had them read it, and then write an essay about it. And when you listen to some of their reactions to, to, to reading this, man, I think it sounds much more like what our, at least our initial response should be when we come to the teaching that we have here. Listen, they, writing things like this. This is probably my favorite one. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't like it. It made me feel like I have to be perfect, and no one is. Another student said this. The things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery. To be, to be angry with or insult someone like that is murder. Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements I've ever heard. Yeah, that sounds a bit more realistic. So, so, yes, as John Stott notes, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, describes what human life and human community look like when they come under the gracious rule of God. Yes, and yet, as R.T. France rightly adds, to interpret the Sermon on the Mount legalistically as a set of rules for society as a whole to live according to is to miss the point. For it represents a demand more radical than any legislator could conceive, going far beyond what human nature can meet, a demand for perfection. Okay, so, great. If, 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 if the kingdom life Jesus describes in this Sermon on the Mount here is not, or at least is not yet, for society as a whole, well, then who is it for? Well, I believe the answer to that can also be found there in verse 1 of our passage where we see that although the crowds are, are invited in to kind of listen in on Jesus' teaching, to, to audit the course as it were, we see that it is Jesus' disciples, 
He calls us disciples and teaches them. They are the intended audience or, or recipients of his teaching, which, yeah, if you happen to be a follower of Jesus yourself, might not sound like that great of news, actually, to hear that. Um, you might be just like, oh, oh great, so, so, so everybody doesn't have to try to live according to these perfect standards, just me. Hmm, oh, yeah, perfect, That's, that sounds great. Um, but listen, hear, hear me, the, the hope, the, the real hope of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the sermon as a whole, as well as this opening section, which we're going to look at over the next few weeks, commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, from the Latin beatus, meaning blessed or happy. The, the real hope that we have for us here is, first of all, to remember that although the Sermon on the Mount does express what life as kingdom citizens is supposed to look like, just like when Moses brought the Ten Commandments down from the mountain to, to God's kingdom people there in the book of Exodus, Jesus knows there's ultimately only one person who can and will live according to those standards perfectly. He knows that. And secondly, as we see in this opening section of Jesus' sermon, the Beatitudes, before, giving, before Jesus gives us a single instruction about anything we're supposed to do as citizens in his kingdom, he tells us first who we are as citizens, who he is making us to be as citizens in his kingdom which is something that's so important for, for us to understand, but something, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once pointed out, that's also incredibly easy to miss. If we understand the Beatitudes, it's just another part of Jesus' sermon where he's telling us how to, how to live, like what we're supposed to do, because the reality is, as, as Lloyd-Jones and, and others point out, ra rather than being a description of anything that we're supposed to do as God's people... Listen, the Beatitudes are actually a description of the kind of person you must first become. They're a description of who God is making you to be before you'll have any hope of living the way that Christ calls us to live. We must be this. So it's, it's like it's almost in a real sense, Jesus begins his sermon with the Beatitudes in order to say, as this description of who you are as citizens in my kingdom becomes more and more true of you, you'll be enabled to live more and more according to this description of how you are to now live as citizens in my kingdom. We need to, to be this before we can do this. So, as we come now here to our passage here, you look at verse 3, you see the very first blessed reality, uh, the very, very first description of, of who we are and who God is making us to be as kingdom citizens is that we are to be, Jesus says, poor in spirit. A citizen of my kingdom must be poor in spirit, have a poverty of spirit. And all I want to do is we just unpack that for the next few minutes is look at just two things. I want to show you the blessing of being poor in spirit and then barriers to having a poverty of spirit. Just those two things, okay? The blessings of and barriers to having a poverty of spirit. Okay, so if you've closed your Bibles, your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to our passage there, Matthew 5, beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me as Jesus begins to describe the character of a kingdom citizen that will enable us to be faithful living in his kingdom. Okay, so let's look first of all at the blessings of being poor in spirit. The blessing of being poor in spirit. So if you look with me again at verse 3 of our passage, Jesus begins this 
section of his sermon, this, this section also called the Beatitudes, begins this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, as you keep reading down, you'll see that there are actually eight of these Beatitudes in total again, with each one of them describing the character of a kingdom citizen and, and the structure of each one, including three things. There is a statement of blessing. There is a statement describing the identity of those who are blessed. And then there's a statement describing the reason that they're blessed. You have those in each of the Beatitudes. So in this first Beatitude, uh, the, the blessing of God is spoken over someone. So, so blessed are you uh, who are poor in spirit. Okay, so that's the identity of the one who is blessed. Because, the reason being, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven belongs to or is made up of or consists of people like these. Now, a little bit to unpack there. First of all, what does Jesus mean by that word blessed that he begins each of these beatitudes with? It might sound obvious, but a little bit more to look at there. The word Jesus uses, makarios, at the beginning of each beatitude, is a word that means happy, is a word that means fortunate or privileged. And yet, what commentators point out is that rather than not necessarily being, this is not necessarily a description of how that person may or may not feel themselves, it's not necessarily you're going to feel happy and blessed necessarily, but it's a description in this case of their state from an outside perspective. It's a, it's a word of, of recommendation or, or commendation from outside, in this case, from God. So as R.C. Sproul notes, to be blessed means more than the emotional state represented by the word happy. It includes spiritual being, having the approval of God, and thus a happier destiny. Okay. So that's blessed. But, but to understand what Jesus means by poor in spirit, we're going to have to do just a little bit more work here. And, and, and to begin with, I think it might be more helpful first to cross what Jesus does, does not mean off the list. Just get those options off the table. Uh, for, for the word that Jesus uses here for poor, it's a word that means destitute. It's a word that means utterly dependent on others for support. Or as one commentator described it, it means begging poor. Okay, so not poor like I just have very little, poor like I have nothing, nothing at all. Uh, and, and yet, to understand this beatitude as describing someone who we would say, okay, has nothing or is destitute, let's say, of the Holy Spirit, okay, can't be that because now we're not talking about a Christian anymore, so it can't be that, or, or to understand it as describing a state of spiritual poverty such that, that's, that whoever this is needs to beg for their very existence. It's hard to imagine Jesus describing either of those things as something which God would look on and say, blessed, happy are you, right? So yes, uh, as it relates to finances, for instance, yeah, Jesus is going to go on to say a lot about, about how his kingdom citizens are to use their money, uh, to, to avoid idolatry of it. And yet, it's important to understand here, Jesus is also, he's not describing some kind of poverty theology, that, that if we can just be poor enough, that makes you blessed enough. That makes you blessed by God. No. And yet, as Kent Hughes rightly notes, neither is Jesus describing here some kind of slug theology. Slug theology where we, we see the blessing of God somehow being given to those who can just think poorly enough of themselves. Oh, I am just the worst. I, 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 I'm terrible. I'm not worthy of any, any love or anything. Like, like, no, right? Poverty of spirit he says, is not the conviction that one is of no value whatsoever. 
It doesn't mean the absence of self-worth or require that we believe ourselves to be zeros. Okay, so, so poverty of spirit is not that, that we are blessed for being financially poor or, or blessed for thinking poorly of ourselves, okay? Great. So if, 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 if that's what Jesus does not mean here in our passage, what, what does Jesus mean by poor in spirit? Who, who is this one? that God sees as a happy and fortunate citizen in his kingdom. Well, I think Leon Morris, I found, had as one of the, like an excellent description that I think just defines it so well, being poor in spirit. He says this, quote, The poor in spirit, in the sense of this beatitude, are those who recognize that they are completely, utterly destitute, listen, in the realm of the spirit. They recognize their lack of spiritual resources and therefore their complete dependence on God, end quote. Or as D.A. Carson really helpfully adds, he says this, poverty of spirit, I love this, is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy. And as such, it is the deepest form of repentance. Listen, it means, it means poverty of spirit is the heart attitude of a person who knows they have absolutely nothing to recommend themselves before God. Nothing at all, nothing in the account, and yet still dares to bring their emptiness to him to be filled. That is the person who is happy and blessed in my kingdom, says Jesus. And my kingdom is made up of just such people as these. I don't know, maybe that, maybe that hasn't like, that just still hasn't hit you or dawned on you yet. That, that penny hasn't dropped and you're still trying to fathom how in the world showing up empty-handed for the party that God could look at that and see that as a blessed thing. That you're showing up to the door and he's like, what have you got? Nothing? Perfect, come on in. Like, we, we can't fathom that. And I think the reason we can't is just because of the, the, the world and the culture that we live in that we're just immersed in. Because as, as F.D. Bruner puts so well, the reason we see the spiritually bankrupt, or God can see the spiritually bankrupt, the, the poor in spirit as blessed, is because of this, quote, the great enemy of the gospel, in light of this first beatitude, he says, is successism. Successism and the teaching that it's, it is the winners of the world who have God's blessing. And oh, isn't that just the lie that so many of us have just heard and, and been taught everywhere in our culture and, and even within the church. We've heard this, we've taught it, and we've just believed this lie that, that, that it is those who, who, who are rich in spirit. That's what we believe. Those who are rich in spirit, those who are rich in the world's goods and in wealth and, and, and rich in spiritual accomplishments, those are the blessed ones. Those are the people we describe as, as blessed. And yet, listen, as Bruno goes on to say, the paradox of the first beatitude is that Jesus sides with those who fail and who feel their failure. And oh, I love this. Thus, the Sermon on the Mount is actually the Sermon from the Valley. It starts low. It starts where most of us live, if we are honest. And yet, if you know Jesus as your Savior today, if you've, you've become a citizen in his kingdom by faith, aren't you so glad that that's, where, that's who Jesus sides with? Aren't you so glad that that's where the Sermon on the Mount begins, where, where we actually are? 
And if you don't yet know Jesus that way, how does it feel to know that he's, Jesus is not waiting on you to clean yourself up enough, waiting for you to build up enough spiritual capital in your bank account in order to adopt you and welcome you as a citizen into his kingdom? Because, yeah, yes, absolutely, it seems foolish. It seems crazy for God to, to welcome spiritually bankrupt people, and yet that's only because the values of Jesus' kingdom are in many ways just so radically different than the values of our world's. But here's the thing, when you come to see at last and really believe Jesus, that acknowledging your spiritual bankruptcy before God is actually the entry port, the entry point for every single one of us into his kingdom. That's, that's, where, you get, that's where you come in. It's only then that you come to see why God would say, blessed one over those who are poor in spirit. Okay, so that's the blessing of being poor in spirit. The last thing I want to look at together with you now are some of the barriers to receiving that blessed welcome from God. So let's look lastly here at barriers to having poverty of spirit. Barriers to having a poverty of spirit. Now, of course, yes, they're, 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 whether it's cultural pressures, peer or family pressures, or even as we saw two weeks ago with Jesus out in the wilderness, the schemes of the devil himself. Yeah, there, there are all kinds of different barriers that we can and do encounter every day that seek to discourage us, that seek to divert us away from having a poverty of spirit, divert us away from wanting to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy before God, all kinds of different barriers. And yet, two that I want us to consider today are barriers that actually originate within ourselves, within our own hearts and minds. Though, yes, surely they are not without encouragement from some of those other sources as well. Barriers to having a poverty of spirit, that if we could just define them this way, to borrow language from pastor and author John Tyson, as having a middle-class spirit and having an elite spirit. Okay, so not being poor in spirit, but having, being either middle class of spirit or, or elite in spirit. I wonder if, man, just even hearing those descriptions, before we say even another word about them, if some of us don't already, we can't already picture exactly what that looks like and see at least one of them at work in our own lives. I know when I heard that, I, I sure did. So first of all, Let's look, at, let's look at these barriers. Those that are middle class in spirit, says Tyson, are those that carry around within themselves things by which they seek to justify themselves before God. The result being that they become incredibly entitled people because they believe everything that they have is something that they've worked for. I earned that. I did that. Uh, Tim Keller, although he doesn't use the exact same language of being middle class in spirit, describes virtually the same thing when he talks about those who, although they might agree that they have debts before God, yes, still don't see themselves as spiritually bankrupt before him. Uh, those who would say, Keller says, uh, uh, those who would come to God and say, listen, I have some money in my spiritual bank account. I've got some. You know, I'm not, I'm not destitute. But yes, I have debts. I know I've done some things that I shouldn't have done, and, and so I would be very happy to have some forgiveness from God now that I see that he's real. That, that, that's the attitude of some middle class in spirit, which if I can give you a picture to imagine, it's like that dog down at the beach who's got that big long stick in his mouth, then coming in and trying to get through a door. And every time the two sides hit, doesn't matter how hard they try, 
the, the more they try to bring that thing in with them, it's, it, it prevents them from getting in. That's, that's the, the middle class in spirit. And, and then those who are elite of spirit, those who are elite in spirit, Tyson notes, are those that would say they have no need of God whatsoever. They're not even trying to get through the door. Why? Well, because they want to be their own gods of their own tiny little kingdoms. They want to be masters of their fate and captains of their soul. So depend on divine grace. Uh, acknowledge that I'm fundamentally broken and powerless to save myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no thanks. I'm all good here. Thank you. And yet... For those of us operating in or tempted towards, first of all, being middle class of spirit, Jesus offers us the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. If you've ever read that before here, two men come to the temple to pray, but while the Pharisee stands before God boasting of all that he's done for God, all the great accomplishments of what he's done, we're told that the tax collector stands far off, won't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast Pray simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the result, Jesus says, is I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Or, or to use the language of, of our passage today, this, this beatitude, the man who was poor in spirit went away blessed of God, a true citizen in his kingdom, while the man who was middle class in spirit saw himself as, as having something of, in his spiritual bank account to, to negotiate with, left being justified in no one's eyes but his own. And then for any who might be tempted towards or, or, or operating in an elite spirit, being elite in spirit, yeah, while the Bible is filled with stories of men and women who saw that they, or felt that they had no need for God and, and were humbled by him as a result, I think one powerful example to just give us an idea of, of what that looks like how God responds to the elite in spirit. We have in Daniel chapter 4 the description of King Nebuchadnezzar, where we read this, listen. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While these words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. He's driven out into the wilderness, goes mad, basically. And only following this seven-year-long severe mercy from God does, does the king finally at last raise his eyes to heaven and acknowledge his spiritual poverty before God, concluding this. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. His ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. It's just like, I, I get it now. I get it. Do you get it? Do, do, you, do you see it? Because either these heart postures, 
either being middle class of spirit or elite in spirit, while they might feel powerful, they feel like they're giving us some measure of control as we relate to God in the end. Can you see they're only prideful barriers of our own making, keeping us from the blessing of God, keeping us from a citizenship in his kingdom that is just freely available. You don't need to bring anything. A citizenship that is freely available to all who will simply come in humility and just acknowledge their need. It's the, only, it's the only requirement. And those barriers keep us from that blessing. Those of you who've ever been part of an addiction recovery program like Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step program, you'll already know that the very first steps in those 12 steps that they say are essential just absolutely necessary to overcoming that addiction as well as experiencing freedom from the destructive patterns are, first of all, to admitting powerlessness to save yourself. Very first step, admitting the powerlessness to save yourself, to say, look around at all the destruction that has been caused around you. Your very best thinking is what got you here. Your best thinking got you here. And then secondly, to acknowledge your need for a power greater than yourself to restore you. Those are the first steps that are essential to overcoming that addiction. Admit your powerlessness and your need for a power greater than yourself to restore you. Or just That is, the, 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 they're saying the road to recovery, the road to freedom can't even begin as long as that person still holds on to the belief either that their problem isn't that bad or that they don't have a problem to begin with. Healing, recovery can't even begin, which sounds actually very similar and and familiar in light of Jesus' opening words to this Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Those who are poor in spirit is the entry point into his kingdom. Uh, When King David David experienced his own humbling process after following much of an elite spirit in himself. 2 Samuel 12, after uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband put to death, and then the resulting humbling as God sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. He wrote these words later in Psalm 51, when he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God. This is following his humbling from the prophet Nathan. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. But then listen. He he added these words in closing. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Listen, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do you see it? That's what it looks like. The, on the one hand, the, the middle class in spirit are, are, are always hustling and bargaining with God, always wondering whether they've done enough in order to be pleasing to him. The elite in spirit want to ignore their spiritual bankruptcy before God altogether and in the end find Jesus' promise at the end of his parable in Luke 18 to be painfully true where Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And yet, for all who will simply come and humble themselves before God, 
acknowledging their spiritual bankruptcy and daring to bring their emptiness to him to be, to be filled, Jesus says they will at last know and understand the true blessing of being poor in spirit for themselves. You'll see when, when you do that, says Jesus, and you'll experience, when, when you can humble yourself in this way, you'll experience the blessed citizenship in God's kingdom that is freely available because of the pleasing work of another that's already been completed on your behalf. There's nothing else you need to do. The work's already been done. So are you poor in spirit today? Does that describe you? Are you poor in spirit? Can, can you confess like John Newton, the, the former slave trader, writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, where he said, my, although my memory is failing, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Can you truly sing the words of that well-known hymn, sing them and, and pray them and truly believe them, saying, yes, God, absolutely, nothing Nothing in my hands I bring. I am completely empty and spiritually bankrupt before you, simply to your cross I cling. Naked I come to you for dress. Helpless come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, lest I die. Can you, can you sing that from your heart today? If you can, However, yeah, imperfectly, however much you might still fail to believe that some, day, some days, and, and praise God. Praise God. Jesus says those who come with this poverty of spirit, they, they are blessed by God. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But if you can't yet, if you, if you feel like I'm not at the place where I, I can do that, I don't even want to do that right now, or maybe simply feel that I'm unworthy to offer that or, or any prayer, to God, if that's where you're at. And listen, can we just acknowledge that there's days when we feel like that too? My prayer for you, first of all, is that God would enable you to overcome every barrier, every barrier to his blessed welcome. And to, rem to remind you, again, that the spiritual bankruptcy that, that you're so afraid to acknowledge to him, that that is the very condition necessary for citizenship in his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God help us believe it. Be it. Amen. Amen.